Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class is dedicated in loving memory of Rosette Waba. Shalom Rosa Batsara, sponsored by the Mahani family. Um, as well, dedicated in commemoration of the Askara of Seli Kezri. Shalom Nishmat Seli Bat Lulu, sponsored by her sons Gabby and Jimmy Kezri. Breakfast in the Class is dedicated in loving memory of Isaac Marcus. Shalom Nishmat Yishak Ben Sophia, sponsored by Isaac Beta. And as well, Leilu uh, Nishmat. And as well, excuse me, for the Rufuash of Razel Peril Bat Sarah Ita, sponsored by Benjamin Friedberg. And dedicated by Mauricio and Laura Sion from South Florida in honor of Mauricio's Bar Mitzvah Parasha. And for all our kids to find their Zivug. Thank you, Mauricio, for starting an amazing trend. If everyone sponsored the week of their Bar Mitzvah Parasha, that would be ridiculous. We'd have even more sponsorships. Okay. Shtabach Shemo. That's a fa- fantastic idea, by the way. As well, Breakfast in the Class is sponsored by Benedetto Mivorach Kahlun, dedicated in honor of the Kahal, La Slahaba Komi Koko, for success in everything. The Cobra was sponsored by nobody. I'm waiting to say that for quite some time. If any. <laughs> if any Rabbi Asmani is now sponsoring the Cobra. Um, more Aviv, Nisim ben Amelia, Ruach Adonai, Tenichel Megaled, and Azaku Baruch. As you can see, my cup is steaming, so I'm not on the Kobru train. But for all those that are, it keeps them awake for Tefillah, for the class, and to start their day. So Azaku Baruch. Okay, let's begin. I want to start with a uh, an interesting story. Rav Shimon Schwab, when he was very very young was sitting by the Hafez Chaim. And the Hafez Chaim called over this young boy who was ultimately going, be, ultimately going to become a tremendous Gaon, a Sadiq, and a Rav, and a Rabbi in his own right. And he said to him, what's the difference between me and you? You know, imagine the Gadol Hador asks you, what's the difference between me and you? What are you going to say? You're going to say, I know how to play Madden on the Xbox. What are you going to say? There's lots of different reasons. Everything is different between me and you. Our praying, our Torah, our Midot, our Mitzvot, everything is different. So the Rabbi Shimon Shuab shrugged, he understood that it wasn't, it was one of those questions that's a setup question. So he shrugs his shoulders, he says, what's the difference? And the Chafetz Chaim says, well, I'm a Kohen, and you're not. And the kid's like, oh, okay. This is not the conversation he thought he was going to have with the Chafetz Chaim, right? And the Chafetz Chaim continues and says, And do you know why it is that I'm a Kohen and you're not? The kid says, no. He says, because my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, when Moshe Rabbeinu saw what happened with the Egel HaZahav, with the golden calf, he saw the Jewish people sinning. He knew that people needed to stand up and make and make a statement. They needed to protest. They needed to do something to change the tide of the way people were behaving. So he said, Mi Hashem Eli. Who is, who is for God? Come to me. Anyone who stands for God, stand with me. Mi Hashem Eli. Shimon Schwab is looking at, the, or young Shimon Schwab is looking at the Hafez Haim. And he says, and my great, 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 great grandfather, he stood up, he joined Moshe Rabbeinu, and he made sure that Am Yisrael was on the right path. 
He stood up to the challenge at hand. He, made a, he did something important. He wasn't embarrassed. And because of that, he became a Kohen. And because he became a Kohen, I became a Kohen. And do you know why you're not a Kohen? Because your great-great-great-great-grandfather, when the time came and the call went out, he did nothing. Don't make the same mistake as your great-great-great-great-grandfather. Now, aside from being an interesting comment, this concept is profound. You know, you think about the fact that this morning we had Kohanim. And a few people got it from the community, went up, and became the vessels of Biracha. How? Why? How come them? I see a guy, he barely knows how to read the verses. I'm a rabbi. You know, he's Yivarechecha, he doesn't even know what comes next. It's not a lot of speaking part, right? And he can't even get that right. But he could give a Biracha, and I can't. Because I'm Israel. Because my great-great-great-grandfather didn't take an opportunity that was presented. My friend's life is full of these opportunities. And the changes that you bring about when a person grabs those opportunities to be part of building a Bet Knesset, to take a role in standing up for the community, in starting projects off, in beginning a new class, in get, getting friends together to study Torah, in building a mikveh, in helping the school. And you know what? It's not only money. People keep thinking that. It's not only tzedakah. You can have all the money in the world. If you don't have people pushing a project, the project's not going to get done. The money will sit in the bank, they'll buy a building, and nothing will get done with the building. Because no one was mishugale davar. No one was crazy for that thing. No one woke up in the morning, went to bed at night thinking, how are we going to get this project done? Are you that person or not? If you are, the reward is in the next world, but it's also in this world, in the future, for you, your family, and your children. What's the difference between me and you? My great-great-grandfather took a step that your great-great-grandfather did not. Wild. We could acquire for ourselves and for our children with our actions. My friends, I want to just talk for a minute about some of these decisions. You know, you read in the beginning of the parasha, you're going to count the Jewish people, everyone should give a half a shekel. So what do you do? You count half a shekel, one Jew. Two shekel, four Jews. Twenty shekel, forty Jews. Right? That's how it works. You count half a shekel, you know every head of every Jew is counted with half a shekel. Then the pasuk says something interesting. The rich guy shouldn't give more. The poor guy shouldn't give less. Now, that sounds like a little bit of a silly pasuk. Because obviously, if you're counting half coins, and the, the, tzaddik, the rich guy comes and he's like, here's a hundred. Hazal baruch. Now they're counting. They think that there's 200 extra Jews. Obviously, Ashir lo And obviously, what is the pasuk coming to communicate? So there's many different ways of looking at this, at this question. But I'd like to share perhaps a conceptual one. And the idea that I'd like to put forward 
is that what the Pasuk was communicating is that the value of a rich life is a half a shekel. And the value of a poor life is half a shekel. A person who's wealthy does not necessarily have a more valuable or a better life than a person who is poor. Now, that sounds like a crazy thing to say. But the truth is, for many of us who have achieved some level of success in our lives, we've seen both sides of the half shekel coin. We've lived lives where you had to work and bust your back to get to work every day on time, and you needed everyone in the family to pitch in. And you know what? And now, Baruch Hashem, we have success. And now we relax. Is our relaxing, wealthy life materially better than that one? Is the love that we had for family, for friends, or the experiences that we had, is the feeling that you had when you made things out of nothing, is that necessarily a worse feeling than the feeling you have when you go to work today? No, it isn't. As a rabbi, you get to hear people's problems. You know how many problems are caused by having money? How many marriages break up because of it? It's fascinating, because many, many people, they don't know how to deal with that biracha. And I always say this, biracha without discipline is a kilala. You pour all that biracha and the guy's not ready, you know what happens? He starts spending money like crazy. He doesn't hang out with his old friends anymore because he has to go to the fanciest places. This is what happens. And my friends, I want to give you the answer in the extreme. There's a million studies that show and prove that people who win lotteries have a terrible life after that point. Suicide, Suicide divorces, uh, you know, uh, isolation. People get mental because they start thinking, well, I don't know, is this person friendly with me for me or for my money? You know, everybody wants a piece of me. They start pushing people away. You know, all these types of things. Now, again, there's been documented studies on this. Why? Because there, a person received that beracha without the possibility of preparation. It happened so fast, you couldn't get used to it. You couldn't make your peace with it. So, so many of us wish for something that actually won't improve our lives. And I need to say this, and I, I need to say this again, there's been all this talk going around the community about families, young people, having less children. Why are they having less children? Because tuition is so high. Rubbish. Don't talk about how tuition is so high when you're spending $10,000 on a pocketbook. And you spend $1,000 on a pair of shoes. And, 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 and going away for a Passover vacation with the whole family is not a luxury, it's a necessity. Why is that a necessity? And Jewish education is luxury. So you didn't choose, you did not choose to have less kids because of tuition. You chose to have less kids because you have tuition and you have a lifestyle that you want to have. I don't begrudge you. No one begrudges you that lifestyle. But at the end of the day, a person may have chosen a lifestyle over a child. Now again, this is not said with judgment. You want to make that call? Fadal, make that call. But just recognize that you're making that call. Um, we have a, a, a gentleman right over here, right? How many people did, you, did they have in your family growing up? Six. Six. 
You have a cousin, Harry Ajmi, right? 11 kids in the family. My father, 10 kids. My mother-in-law, 9 kids. Number 12. Only one to two generations ago, people had 10 kids. And, and ask, how did they make it? Fadal, how many? We don't need to say how many. 14. This is one, two generations ago. It got cut down to eight, to six. And now where are we? Many ki- I'm talking to young people in the community who are talking about they're deciding between two and three. Mechila. Mechila. Now again, no one should tell you how many kids to have. The decision as to how many kids you should have should be something that you should figure out based on how much, how much you're able to deal with raising those kids and loving them. Bringing them up, nurturing them, having a healthy family. But, but don't beg out because it's just about tuition. Tuition is a problem. We have to solve it. There's no doubt about it. I'm with you on that. But there are a lot of things that also cost that. You, you don't need a BMW Jeep. You don't need it. You don't need a Lamborghini, whatever. And then complain about, you don't need it. And then you're complaining about tuition. Again, no problems. I want you to have your Lamborghini. I want you to have all these things. But just recognize that having more does not mean that you have a better life. It doesn't mean that. How many brothers have been in my office where they broke apart only now over money? All the time they were fighting side by side in the trenches together, they figured out how to have shalom. When they didn't have a dollar to split between them, they know how to work together. But now that there's excess money, which should mean that there's excess shalom, where are we? Now they can't live with each other. Now they can't talk. Now they can't go to each other's parties. Now they can't be involved together. What did money bring? It brought a kilala. Money can be the biggest bracha in the world. But by the way, this is not only about money. People chase kavod. It's important to have kavod, to have respect. But when a person is obsessed with kavod, when something shifts from something that's nice, that people appreciated you, to needing kavod, to people who operate from a place that if they don't have kavod, the world is going to end. The guy who got so successful in business, his wife prayed for him to do well, to be promoted. Now he's at work. He walks in. What does he say? All the ki- uh, everyone is they're sitting there like this, taking notes. He says, "Make the copies. Send out the item. Arrange the meeting." Everyone's writing notes. They're filling everything you say, doing the orders, changing the policies, selling the stocks, buying the stocks. Hadas a god. He walks into the, the meeting room. Everybody's already waiting for him around the table. Successful businessman. And then he walks in the door of his house and his wife says, honey, you forgot to take out the garbage. He can't handle. Because who can handle being a god at work and a chadama in the house? He's not used to anyone arguing with him. And when you've learned that, and when you've learned that, what happens? There's lots of husbands who decide they don't want to come home. And they'd much rather work until late at night. And they'll tell you it's to make more money, to give more things. You think this stuff, this house, pays for itself? 
100%. But you understand again, that that extra time at work that got you those luxuries had a price. Now the kids never have their father by any recital, never have their father by any school event, never is in PTA, never goes to the basketball games, he's never there for what's it called, for bedtime. But you know what? They have a beautiful room and a magnificent bed with a Lumetra special lighting system, a drop-down TV, wonderful things that can never replace a dad. These, these decisions that we make, they, have, they come with a price tag. So just decide if it's worth that price tag. I, I don't mind people, I always say this, making bad decisions, as long as it was a decision. Don't let the decision happen to you. It should happen by you. When a person, on the other hand, when they're disciplined about the way they spend money, when they're disciplined about the way they treat their kids, just because you can have it all and you could buy it all doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean that you teach your kids and you want to get, we all want to give the kids the things that we didn't have growing up. But the man that you are, with the discipline and the work ethic that you, are, that you have, it came because you didn't have. It came because you had to work for it. You build a kid that always get what gets what he or she wants. You know what you did? You took the word want and you turned it into the word need. And now that kid, when he has to decide who to marry, can only marry someone that will give them that lifestyle. And the decision is going to be colored by that. And they'll walk away from the love of their life because he doesn't have enough for my bag. But you did that. You made that. Unwittingly. With the greatest of love. With the desire only to give. You built that. You spoiled the kid rotten. I remember one of my clearest childhood memories. How many people here remember Reebok pumps? Remember Reebok pumps? Reebok pumps came out and I was like, yeah, any Mashiach is here. He's going to have a special edition Reebok pump with a white donkey. He pushes it like this. And he take us all home. Forget it. You could pump up your sneakers. You know, you imagine you pump yourself high enough. You're jamming like Jordan, even though you're Jewish. All my friends had, everyone had. I came to my mom. Ma, I need the Jordans. I need, excuse me. I need the pumps. Can I get the pump? My mother said they're $150. We're not getting the pumps. You can have sneakers and you can have a pump, but not together. <laughs> I don't think she said that. I just think that's a dramatization in my mind. <laughs> so I tried to convince my mom and I used my, the most unbelievable we uh, weapon at my disposal. The unbelievable weapon that I had was my Uncle David. My great uncle David loved us like you can't believe. He was um, my, my mother's uncle. He never had children, he never married. He always loved taking care of us. And even my friends all called him Uncle David. He was the one that took all of us out to pizza and ice cream. He did all nice things for us. He, you know, amazing man, such a warm heart. I appealed to my uncle David. My uncle David came, he said to my mom, and I'm sitting there by the top of the stairs looking through the banister, right? He says, listen, you know, I know Shlomo really wants the sneakers. You know, why don't we get it for him? She's like, well, it's $150. She says, you know what, I'll pay. This will be my treat. I want to get him a gift. For... And my mom said, no. <laughs> and at the time, I was so angry and so mad and so left out. 
I was so upset, huh? Did your mom have a pair? My mom did not have a pair, no. <laughs> but it felt like she was the only one that didn't with me. <laughs> My mom said no. She said it's not, it's not about the money or having the money. It's about having a child realize that there are things that he or she does not need. And I'm allowed to say no. And you teach them that they can also say no to things. Just because you want something doesn't mean you get it. My friends, the reason why we chase these things is because we think that the life of an ashir is not represented by a half shekel. It's represented by a million shekel. But the pasuk says, hey, ashir lo Vehadal, and someone who has two pieces of bread, and someone who grew up on the Lower East Side, like half of the Syrian community did when they first came, and the father and the mother and the kids all running out, selling shoes on the street, they, that, they became salesmen from that. They learned how to, how to hawk anything. And that same guy who built and who taught his kid to sell a shoe at the age of seven or eight, is now selling, you know, Reebok pumps, you machshemo, right? Is now, is now, is now selling companies because he learned the hard way, you know, the valuable lessons, the valuable lessons of life. So I think what, Rav, what the Hafez Chaim was saying to Rav Shimon Schwab as a child, that what you do can have an impact on your great-great-grandchildren is a beautiful and powerful spiritual idea. It's a beautiful and powerful idea for us. Someone said to me, you know, Rabbi, I hate having my name on things, but I'd like to put my name on the wall upstairs in the synagogue. We have a pillar section and a benefactor section with people that are pillars of the synagogue and of the community and benefactors of the community. I said, if you don't like your name up, why are you asking me to put the name on the wall? He says, because my family comes to the shul and I want my children and my grandchildren to see that this is what we support and this is what's important to our family. That's a decision to try and educate your children, your grandchildren. You have so many people that they bring their kids into the business, but they don't bring their kids into the tzedakah meetings. If they see you making money, they should see you giving money away. That's also part of the education process. So you have to think to yourself, what do you want for your kids and grandkids? What do you want them to learn? What do you want them to see? I have a fellow in London, a wonderful man, very wealthy guy. Do you know what he said to me? He said, whenever I go anywhere, I always ask them one question. What is your second best? He never flies first class, he flies business class. He doesn't fly, well, now I could tell him there's private jets, he could fly first class, by the way. <laughs> right? He never get, takes the, the, the presidential suite, right, the penthouse. He takes the next one, the one underneath it. He has money. The Torah does not want you to not enjoy your money. Enjoy your money. Adraba. If you live large, Bezat Hashem, you'll also give tzedakah large. Amazing. Enjoy it. But that, that his kids here, we don't need the best. Everywhere they go, they know the first thing their dad's going to say is, what's it say? Car rental, we have the Rolls Royce, and we have a Mercedes Jeep. 
Love the Mercedes Jeep. Enjoy it. But not the best. We don't need to be the best. We don't need everyone's eyes on us. In fact, the eyes on you, the ayin only brings with it problem after problem after problem. My friends, these decisions that we make, they have real life ramifications. And you don't notice them right away. You only notice them after some time. But it's like that. So I'll end with this. Now, I've shared this before. It's not only money. It's kavod. It's power. Power can be used. Kavod can be used. If people respect me as a rabbi, what do I do with that respect? If I, you know, if I feel that it gives me my value, if it makes me feel important, then it can become poisonous. You have to have kavod from everybody. No one could ever disagree with you. No one could ever correct you. You're never wrong. A person who has ka- who's obsessed, drunk on kavod, is not listening to tochacha. They're not listening to anyone's advice. They're, not, they're ignoring everyone that they think is beneath them. But if you use your kavod, if I turn to people who I know respect me and I say, this is a good tzedakah, I think we need to do something differently here. We need to introduce a change into the synagogue. Rabotai, on Shabbat, we're going to make now the tefillah v'refuah Please don't speak when I'm saying the name of someone whose their father is not well. Because the guy feels like two cents that while we're praying for his father to get better, or his brother, or his son, you're sitting there talking about the Yankees. How does that make the guy feel? Say quietly, say amen at the end. You get, you, people will listen because you have kavod. But it can become a big problem. So you have to think, if that's not what makes a better life, how do I control it and use it instead of it using me? I went to my dad's synagogue and I sat in the back of the synagogue. That's what I like to do when I'm not praying here. I sit in the back of the synagogue. So of course, some, uh, one of the SY guys comes up to me and he's like, Rabbi, Aib. I might be seeing He's pulling me, pulling me. I wanted to get in, not make a scene, be in the back. And this guy, and people were looking now. He's like, no, the front. Sit next to the front. Sit by the rabbis. I can't sit here. Not for the rabbi. Ba, 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 ba. Finally, I just fixed the guy with my steeliest glare. And I said, Rohi. I said, every rabbi has to develop a technique. Has to think of things to help him keep his kavod in check. To remind him that he's not so important, that he's only important because of his job. He's not this person. It's not important. Sitting in the front is not something he needs. It's not even something he should want. But you have to build techniques to make yourself bulletproof from the poisonous nature of kavod and power. I said, this is my thing. Leave me alone. This is my thing. That when I go to another shul, I could sit in the back. I'm a regular guy. Happens to be that in my shul, I have a job. And that job means that I have to sit in the front. And that job means that people call me rabbi. But I'm still Shlomo from the block. Yani. <laughs> now the point, the point I'm trying to leave you with is if we think this way, we can put measures in place that all these things, which are very powerful in terms of shaping a bigger, better, more comfortable life for yourself, they give you the positive sides of their beracha, 
and not the negative ones. Bezrat Hashem, we should always live life with that discipline, with that ability, with that preparation, and through that experience, a life only of Beracha. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen ve